Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Doctor here. Today, I have a wonderful conversation with one of the dearest friends of this podcast, Dr. Greg Enriquez. Dr. Greg is a psychologist and professor at the James Madison University in Virginia. And today we talk about love and relationships and community. And that's a beautiful uh, thread that I have been lit up by lately. Been very motivated. I think that if you're listening to this podcast uh, consistently, you'll realize there's a through thread through all of these guests that I've been talking to lately and my recent talk with James Schmachtenberger and all these different things. So um, I hope it's helpful if, and I am being called into more. That's, is that the most woo woo thing you can say? I am being called into. Now, I do feel drawn to having conversations with people that support their relationships. And um, I think it's something that I've always had a um, affinity for. And it's something that ties into my philosophical coaching just one-to-one. So if you have existential knots, if you have relational knots, and you'd like support in untying them, consider checking out airyintheair.com. The coaching page has a link for a free coaching call. and would love to explore that with you. And without further ado or one further ado is that if you listen to this podcast and you like it this you have to recognize that this podcast and the things that we talk about are so incredibly niche and the people who enjoy it and benefit from it if you are one of those people consider yourself um, in a very small community niche community of people um, and because of that consider becoming a patron on patreon that just helps so much that's patreon.com slash airy in the air for as little as five dollars a month you can support this podcast so now without further ado here's a little music and my talk with dr greg enriquez Greg, my man, welcome back. It's been a while. Stoked you're here. Great to be here, friend. Thanks for having me. Okay, so this new direction, as before we recorded, just talking about our lives, it's just uh, brings up so much. And I would love your insight on human relationships and uh, more specifically community. Mm. So I, I just like, I'll give you two little experiences in my life and I just kind of want to hear you r- respond and riff on these things. Okay. First one was when I was 20 years old, I met a woman as I was traveling in Mexico and soon she became my wife. We were married for nine years. Okay. And during that time, I told her that I would always love her. And when we divorced, I almost took it back, but there was something in me that gnawed at me that really told me that I wanted to mean that. And I wanted to be capable of meaning that and embodying it. And it took a long time and I was able to do it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that our friend Jordan Hall and and John Verveke have talked about one of the problems we have in our society right now is that our sense of community is based in shared narrative and not in real relationships of care. Uh My intuition is that loving 
is something analogous to seeing clearly in the moment, in like the, the present all the time. There's a new version of Greg all the time. Oh. And like being open to seeing the new manifestation all the time is mm. analogous to loving. And also it seems that we use loving uh, ro as a romantic term mm -hmm. and there's a important distinction between the temporal infatuation and the love that is metaphysically possible between people and you know as um mark gaffney zach stein are talking about this uh this human cosmoerotic consciousness the mm -hmm. the the love that pulls atoms together is the love that pulls people into higher order holes as mm -hmm. as couples mm -hmm. so I would love to just kind of like hear your thoughts on this. Where does this, uh, hmm. what does this stir for you? Totally. Uh, well, I was just at a meta modern spirituality con uh, conference uh, where Zach and I were hanging out and we agreed the universe started by fucking itself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the core of Eros is going all the way down and the negative positive attracting charge of the electromagnetic super force. <laughs> oh my god yes so we can start there that's <laughs> generative <laughs> uh, and that was actually in the context of this uh, uh kind of understanding yeah the evolution of the universe out of a void uh and then into its energy information complexification um and and all of that so uh so that's one thing in relation that that uh, now let's think about that in terms of like community and then we'll come back to love. Mm -hmm. So we are hanging out at this Metamodern Spirituality Conference brilliantly led by Layman Pascal and hosted by Brendan Graham Dency and a lot of our, you know, another set of friends there asking this question about what is good. Um, what's it good conceptually? Sort of the logos of good. Um, what's the pathos? That's the way I would frame it. Sort of the felt experience. It's our mythos, our collective narrative, and then how does that orient an ethos, our ethic? Um, and I would totally agree uh, with what Jordan and John are talking about in terms of like a whole religion that's not a religion, um, and and somewhat seeking of a worldview. Um, what I would say, and I think they would certainly agree with this: our all aspects of our community embodiment and sharing have become. Uh, highly fractured, okay, um, you know, and and certainly our practices together, our embodied practices of living inside of a community, uh, have certainly been deeply fractured. Uh, we, we essentially have left the family as the primary unit, um, and even that is certainly um, under a lot of pull for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and at the level then of loneliness, we see epidemic levels of loneliness and isolation. Uh, I had some notion where um, I saw a stat where something like 70% of the people would say they did not have a meaningful conversation with someone this week. <laughs> um, or, you know, 50% of people defining themselves as lonely, things like that. Um, so a shared sense of embodied practice, somebody like Ian McGilchrist was talking about this, like, okay, what are our procedural, perspectival, um, participatory felt sense of being in the world? using John's LPs, how do we cultivate that? Certainly that's a focus of this metamodern spirituality frame. Uh, we did some rituals together, lit some satin circles, men held some candles, women held some goblets of water. We, we walked around the woods in a particular way. We sat around a fire, we told stories. Um, you know, we were basically just trying to give the opportunity for a felt sense of communal participation. Uh, and there were definitely times in which uh, I think overall the system has succeeded in that. There are really times when you felt that resonance um, and you really could see how much of that is missing, you know, in our current worldview. Um, my angle on this from a Utah perspective is, is, is that it's tragically missing at the level of logos, or at least that's where Utah has the most to say, meaning that the, the logical systems of our understanding 
uh, from quote unquote science uh, in the relationship to how we construe meaning and relationship itself is, you know, so horribly out of sync. And what I mean by that is that what the lessons that we have taken from science, the reductive, mechanical, materialistic lessons from science, and try to apply it to our lived experiences give rise to a pretty impoverished uh, sense of being in the world. Uh, Utah says it doesn't need to be. <laughs> you know, we could take a very coherent naturalistic ontology uh, and, and align that with our life world in a way that does justice to the sacred, to our ensoulment, to our connection in the world, to our connection with nature uh, in a way that actually validates it and frames it in a way that would create a collective shared justification system, shared sense of is and ought, that coordinate our embodied participatory community felt sense. Um, and then we would be a lot better off. You know? um, our practices, our perspectives, our participatory connections, and our propositions are, would all be then much better coordinated and sustainable and fulfilling and nourishing. That's, that's a, we're missing that potential. Um, and then we could love together. <laughs> we could realize a lot more love in the agape sense of the term. I mean, love has lots of different meanings, and so we should be clear you know, I, I love life. Um, I love the universe. I love my dog, Benji. You know, well, I love my girlfriend, whatever. Uh, the, the, the kinds of the framings of love, though, mean different things. I'm, I'm in love with this moment. Um, all of that would be particular kinds of different meanings of love. And we would want to have a richer vocabulary. I wish we had a much richer vocabulary uh, to speak to that. Um, I think that those kinds of vocabularies would help us when we fall in love, like you did, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then confronted the felt sense of, oh my God, you're my partner forever. I want to love you forever. You know, and you justify that and you say that. What does that mean? You know, are you, yeah. are you really in a position at 20 to say that? Um, and then if you do say it and you feel it, I certainly I can appreciate the honoring of feeling that and then know that 30 years later, <laughs> Or however long the arc is, you know, um, hmm, you know, that's a, what do we actually mean by those things and what would be cognitively or justificatorily consistent with our felt sense of being in the world? Um, and how do we navigate that, that deep feeling, need, want to connect with somebody and say, oh my God, I love you. You'd be my soulmate. I love you forever. And no, or now to, if you say that, does that connect, commit you then? So 50 years later, I'd be like, oh, it really isn't working out. But since I said it, <laughs> in order for me to be consistent, I have to try to figure out how to make this work. Uh, these well, are great, great questions. So there's some reflections. Yeah, I really like that. And, you know, I think on that that last piece, uh, you know, 50 years later, the, the question of what that what does that mean? And then how do I enact it? You know, it's not always... It's not always obvious, even in your friendships, if you really care about your friends, it's not always obvious how I behave in relationship to my friends that's best for them, that's best for me. It's like, it's a deep question and it, and it um, deserves uh, endless rumination and as much um, respect, honor, um, you know, at least as much respect for the question as you can muster as a person. Oh. But to to back up a little bit, I would love to hear from you what you think some of these, like specifically these pathologies that stain our sense of relationship. Um, there was a lot of metamodern jargon in <laughs> and you know I, I I track most of it, but I would love to get kind of specific. You know, are we talking about a? Are we talking about capitalism? Has capitalism stained our sense of community? Is it our ability to each individually grocery shop that stops us, or that um, disenchants our? communal relationships what is it and 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 how far back are we looking here let's let's start there because i i well, do want to get into 
kind of like intimate relationships. Um, you know, Schmachtenberger recommended this book called The Way to Love by Anthony DeMello that I really like that provides some really cutting insights. Uh, it's almost like a Eastern, um, how would I call it? It's like a healthy unattachment. It's like a non-dual, non-attachment look at relationships and life in okay. general. And it, it seems to me we have all kinds of uh, pathologies in our thinking in relationships and love. And I, I want to get there, but first let's go to the pathologies of community of in our, you know, starting our biological world of how we mm -hmm. feed ourselves and how that plays into how we view our relationships. Totally. Uh, right. I'll, I'll, I'll go a little lighter on the jargon. I'll <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to the show. Right. Um, right. Uh, and that, that, that's a, that, that. So, okay. So what happened <laughs> to us, you know, um, in, in terms of where we are, here's a couple of things that I'll just offer. Okay. Uh, so one is, Hey, do I believe in value what my neighbor believes in values? Okay. And I live now, I moved into an apartment. I live around, I don't talk to anybody in this apartment. I go to my little, <laughs> my little apartment. I just go in. No idea. I say hi. You know, I'm friendly. Okay. Um, a long time ago, that is not the way it is. Okay. A long time ago, you know, uh, and I'm not saying this is necessarily better, but it certainly has advantages, you know, 500 to that, you know, whatever years ago, if you're got sort of Christian uh, Europe, everybody's got the same basic worldview and everybody's doing a lot of the same practices and a lot of the same framings for the trials and tribulations of one's life and a lot of same appreciation for what's sacred. Okay. Um, so we stopped that. There's a, there's a tremendous fracturing of our worldview embodying us in what is sacred. So I think you're going to lose community in that regard. Now, maybe you should. I'm an agnostic, atheistic, Cynthia. So my worldview about the way the world works, sorry, a little jargon, but, um, but it's like, mm, yeah, that's like kind of a lot of that. If you take it as concrete, it's kind of bullshit. So, so that's trouble, you know, but it served a particular function. So that's one thing. Another thing uh, that I think is really important. You asked about capitalism. Okay. Capitalism. One of the things I, in the unified theory that I uh, discovered fairly late in its development, like as in 2012, was inside the influence matrix. So I'll be clear about what I mean. This little, little yellow box over here. There's a thing called the influence matrix in the unified theory. Uh, which is the fourth little branch on this thing called the tree of life, uh, fourth little branch. And what it does is it maps the way in which we track and experience the relational world. So again, it maps the way in which we track and experience the relational world. The unified theory says, or, you know, builds on research that says, we humans are very sensitive to the relational world and context. And we have a lot of perceptual, motivational, and emotional architecture, ways of thinking and feeling <laughs> and doing um, that are very highly attuned to our relational environment. Okay. Maslow, in very simple terms, Maslow talked about this. We have needs for belonging and esteem, respect and connection. Okay. And so psychologists have known about this for a long time, but the exact nature of this is difficult to really parse out. Like, what do we really need and know? Well, I discovered one really key element around this belonging esteem dynamic that um, has been underappreciated, I think. I certainly underappreciate it. When you see it, it's really important. And that is this issue of sort of belonging and esteem is what I call the relational value social influence barometer. But what that means is you track your felt sense of having relational value and social influence in the world. Okay. And notice I say two things there, relational value and social influence. 
and I've connected them together, but they're also separate. Okay, what are they? Social influence is the instrumental capacity to move other people in accordance with your interests. Okay, so it's like, hey, can I get you to do stuff instrumentally? Okay, relational value is the extent to which you are seen, known, and valued by important others. Unified theory says, actually, we are tracking both of those things simultaneously at the core of our relational resource system. So think about your hunger system, like how many calories do I have? And then your calories are like, what are the minerals and the water and everything that I need? Well, this thing's tracking how many relational calories, both in terms of your social influence and your felt sense of relational value. Okay. All right. Why is that important? Why does it relate to capitalism? Well, what capitalism did is it created basically a generalized market for social influence. Okay. So that capital now, in terms of, you know, money, <laughs> put it in simple terms, money, I can then use money to move people. Now, and then the power that I have with money to get services and goods then is influence. I have completely separated out relational value. Uh, uh-huh. Okay, because it doesn't really, I've got to, I just need a fucking worker. I'll get you to do it and I'll pay you. And if you don't want to do it, I'll get somebody else. I don't give a shit about you. I give a shit about your influence, my influence over you, your work. Okay, so now you're interchangeable. The capital makes you fungible. I can just swap you out, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means that it's not at all about you. It's about your capacity to work in the instrumental sense of doing shit in the world. Okay. So that's great at one level in the sense that we create this market exchange and then we can get people to do shit. Okay. But we now created a communal market exchange that completely pulls social influence and leaves behind relational value. I feel like my work just uses me. I don't feel like they know who I am. I don't feel like they give a shit about because they don't really. <laughs> I mean, as a bottom line means that you're basically interchangeable. Okay. You're worth whatever it is the money gives you. And the money is not anything to do with Greg or Ari. It's just a person. Okay. So if you want to get a sense of the how weird that is in some case, put it in the context where relational value really matters, and that's in your real relationship. Okay. And the next time you're having a really good connection with your girlfriend uh, or your son or say, hey, this went really well. I'm going to pay you $5 so that you do more of that. Okay. Okay? Immediately that should make you feel all gooey inside. Right? Like I don't want my mom to pay me because I've been a good son. I want my mom to love me (laughs) because I'm her son. So you can feel it in your gut. So now what we did through the power of capitalism at the social relational value is we confused or overshot social influence as the thing. And we created a hunger and a craving and an absence of relational value. Hmm. It's a very functional utilitarian uh reproducible it's almost like a monocrop for influence right money's like the monocrop of influence as opposed to having a myriad of different relationships that would have your needs met and we and science and its mechanistic understanding behavioral mechanistic understanding of the world okay gave rise to, oh, this is the way it works. I'm going to build technologies for the way it works. There's no love. It's just people doing shit for other people in a reinforcing sort of way. And then we can get them in this kind of mechanism. But because the worldview wasn't sophisticated, it just reduced everything to movement and power. Okay. And it's like, actually, nature built us (laughs) differently (laughs) than, than your simplistic mechanistic worldview suggests. There's actually, there's, there's a lot of other things that are going on that you would miss 
if you didn't through this lens. And we did, we missed it. We built societies around it. We built mechanisms around it. We said, look at all this unbelievable shit that we have. Of course, we're going to, because we all that we care about is effing and fucking and being safe and eating good food. That's our only reinforcement system, right? No, <laughs> not really. But if you look at psychoanalysis and behaviorism, it's kind of what they say. Okay, now let's add into this the thing that we're seeing, which is that shared narrative proliferates inside of this system so rapidly. And yeah, I think you just made the case of how real relationships of care fade. But why is it that this thing that you just laid out why is it so ripe for shared narrative to become the new community and when i meet when i say that what i mean is essentially that we have you know like if we zoom on politics it's basically that people just want to like associate with democrats and the you know, the Democrats want to be around Democrats and they don't actually have a deep care or relationships of care that really support one another. But as long as the narrative is the same, or at least they regurgitate it in a similar way, it is the, that's like what people have called community. I think, well, um, you know, a lot of people, and I think have wondered whether or not politics is the new religion. Uh -huh. um, and so part of the argument that I'm making is that we're, we broke key aspects of our shared narrative at the level of sort of sacred and value. We replace them with instrumental narratives around materialism, consumerism, things along those lines. Um, in terms of what it is that gives our lives meaning and purpose and moral value, um, you could argue then that the political sphere, uh, certainly in the United States, and its polarization has pulled people into that frame. It's like, oh my God, there's good and evil. I mean, the, the idea that people have an urge for good and evil and then justify accordingly and need to make sure that they're on their side is the good side and it's fighting against the evil side. And this is a pretty, if you understand human nature through investment and influence and justification, <laughs> okay, and how groups will get pulled together and at a base level, there's really a need to feel like you're on the right side um, of history. And I see our political fracturing as sort of like taking this place of this battle of what would normally be sort of a more religious fear is just, well, there's sort of religious overlap, but it's sort of like, oh my God, what's good and what's evil in the world? And people hunting for tribes of what's good and evil in the world. Um, and where are we in this sort of, where are the tribes that people need to find? Um, I think the polarization is, is one, you know, clear subset of tribes that pull people in this particular direction. And people want, are hunting for a narrative. And hunting then, you feel a lot better if you're in a group that has the same narrative that's dissonance reducing. It's sort of like, I'm confused. Oh my God, here's a belief system that sort of makes sense to me. It makes sense to these other people. And then I get around them and they validate me and I validate them. And then my dissonance goes down and it confirms me by talking to people that agree with me. I confirm me that this belief system must be true. Look at all these other people believe it. I feel the group in there. These other people don't know what the hell they're talking about. And I'm now in part of a, a part of a system uh, that is a tribe. Uh, you know, Peter Lindbergh's you know, mimetic tribe makes the point that now with the internet, you, you had certain kinds of tribes and now we're really, we fractured a lot of them, but also pulled them intensely. Um, you know, or, or afforded people an opportunity to get pulled intensely into them. Digital tribes. Yeah. Now they digital can, tribes, yep. digital tribes that are based only around an intellectual um, expression of a certain ideology. Right. And this is, so the, the fractured ideology in terms of shared narrative, if you the emphasis there simply is well the digital ideology and advertising and politicking is so ripe to get people tribal you know it, it does everything that you could imagine in many ways to pull the tribal primitive 
defined us against them kind of mentality. Um, and it doesn't embody us in community together, you know, um, at multiple levels. Within, even within our tribe, we're not embodied communally and certainly not with other tribes embodied communally. It's just an ideological justificatory us, them, shit show. Um, not, you know. So not, I, and, and what I hear there, so much of that, uh, so much of those pathologies are built on the pathways that we have evolved to have of an in-group and an out-group and our need to, our, our evolution having us being so cooperative and cooperation being our greatest strength and that cooperation being predicated on needing to have some tribe and, and, you know, us prioritizing our well-being over the anonymous well-being. So I can have some sympathy for us there that those pathways exist. And I also feel like I have respect for the task at hand, which is the transition from that tribal, and I would call it biological urge to really protect just the in-group and, um, and then the movement towards a, a transcendent, um, larger understanding of bigger and bigger holes being ourselves, you know, like right. the Ubuntu, I am because we are, comes to mind there. So actually, Ubuntu, uh, the, the framing of a Tua. <laughs> Um, and, and that when I, I used to say UTUA, and then I was reading up on Ubuntu, that's the way I say that the African philosophy that you just mentioned. Uh, and then I was like, oh, Atua, <laughs> Ubuntu, Atua, Ubuntu, I used to say, <laughs> as a way of basically saying um, this, the need for an interconnected related structure is, is embraced powerfully by that particular African philosophy. It's a beautiful thing. It um, is beautiful. So. And this is something that, you know, Alex Ebert, the lead singer of the Magnetic Zeros, we've talked about a lot. You know, he has really zoomed in on the societal narrative that everyone should be hyper independent and have their career, have their money. You know, like you turn 18, you go to college, you come out, you never live in your parents' house. Like you're like, you earn your own shit. Don't be a mooch. All these like, just like small things. And, um, I think that we have a deep spiritual need to to know and live inside our deep interconnectedness and uh it's a it's a really beautiful thing. So do you have a sense for either the destination or the path that has us move from a a place where community is merely shared narrative and particularly ideological mimetic shared narrative and back towards one where our community is based in real relationships of care. And, and, and first let's, let's zoom in on that second part because I guess we haven't zoomed in on that quite yet. What comes to mind when you think of real relationships of care? Um, I mean, to just look at people and their relationship with their friends and families today. There's still we're still riddled with care. <laughs> I mean, you know, certainly there's a lot of alienation and isolation. Um, there's an enormous amount of love in, in people in their relations today. I mean, you know, just so just so just think about you know who you care about, who can you be intimate with, who would you die for? Where is the relational? And and I would say. There's a lot of it around. That's not like it's not like we've broken all bonds of human relating by any stretch. Um, we've we're, we're malnourished in relationship to it, but it's not like it's we're like completely barren and starved. Uh, obviously, some individuals are. Some individuals are living unbelievably rich lives of connection to this day. Um, yeah. uh, and a shout out to Alex. I love freak theory, by the way. <laughs> go uh, magnetic zero so you and I can uh, riff off of that stuff for a while and I'm certainly appreciative of the critique we should be very aware of the critique that the United States in particular is an epicenter of individualism 
sort of paradoxical individualism at the level of slavery and all that history. But nonetheless, it emphasizes a very strong individualistic ethic that I think is overshoots by far the self, other self society embedded dialectic that we should be uh, structuring, meaning that, yeah, it's me, it's you, it's a relational world. Um, it's not just me and what I can do to relate the American dream and how much money and toys I can get. Um, that is, it's more like, hey, how do I relate to the planet? How do I relate to you? How do I love? If you want to get back to sort of like, and how do I be present in that love? Um, that's a, you know, that's a better narrative, especially now after the success of capitalism and our control, it is time to swing the pendulum another way uh, to achieve a balance. Yeah, I love this. And I I, I want to add some things and I want to zoom in. You know, when I said, what are the real, real relationships of care? You mentioned that there's so many of them. We have so many of them in our friends and our families. And, and I agree, but I, it is my experience as I've related as profoundly as I can my whole life, I've just been such a deep relater from my own, you know, set up for that by my own wounds and my own propensities, capacities, preferences, all of this has just like had me be such a feel that deeply and felt it quickly in you, friend. I know, I know. And I so appreciate (laughs) that. You know, the people who are available to relate to me intensely, I've just like always, um, uh, I've been attracted to quickly. Um, but I want to zoom in on those relationships because I think that we can begin to pick apart the pathology there and uh, acknowledge some of the downfalls. So when I think of a real relationship of care, I think of, first of all, that feeling that you're talking about, that feeling of love, that feeling of care that brings a person into the sphere of your awareness deeply enough for you to begin to consider what is good for them. Currently, I feel like one of the things that we're malnourished for is people who want to see us clearly enough and put their awareness on us clearly enough so that they could even consider for a second what might be good for us. This is something that our parenting has lost, where the assumption of parental authority is, I would argue, tyrannical. It is a it's not a complete monocrop. There, you know, I live in such a beautiful community with incredible parents that give me hope and and um that make me feel like there is a, you know, a deep, profound love between parents and children that is tempered by a self-awareness that keeps the constant projection and the assumption of parental authority at bay. Um, but there is an abuse of parental authority that. I would argue so often, and I'm not saying all the time here, even in any relationship, even in abusive parents, it's not even all the time, but there is an abuse of parental authority that keeps parents from genuinely considering with a deep curiosity, what is good for my child right here and right now? This is something that, you know, if we just take that small fractal of how parents can abuse their own parental authority and project or fail to consider where their child is developmentally in their life, in their character, in their preferences, in their capacities, all of these things, and to take that incredibly complex fractal and ask the deep, hard question of what is good genuinely, what is really good right now for that person. If we take that fractal and we spread it out onto our society, I think that we see this constantly. I think that 
friends who are really good friends are rare. And one of the things that illuminated this in me was my deep dive into nonviolent communication, which helped me see what active listening really was because I wanted more of my friendships to be, I, I, I called it therapeutic where people would genuinely listen, not just shut up until their turn to talk, but people would actually listen. This was something that changed my life in my podcast because I got to talk to people like you, John Verveke, Zach Stein, Jordan Hall, these people who would actually listen when I would talk. Um, and it's a feeling of being seen. It's a feeling of being heard. It's a feeling of being affirmed. And we are just absolutely malnourished for this thing. And we're starving and we're desperate for it. The times where you use active listening in a friendship and it, it profoundly changes someone's day we'll just say the, uh -huh. the smallest fraction of time or transformation changes their day is 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 quite profound so let's i guess i would love to hear what that brings up for you riff on how you see that the care because i you know this this thing at the at the base of it it is you know we do have this deep desire to care but it's almost like we've been duped as to how to do it. We don't actually have the practices. We don't actually have the foundational understanding of embodying community. We know we have lost it in an embodied sense and we only have it mimetically now. We only have it intellectually now. We can cluster ourselves biologically through family and we can cluster ourselves mimetically through ideology but we're like losing this capacity to really hear each other, to see each other. It looks like our boundaries being awash. It looks like people pleasing constantly. What does this bring up for you? It brings up a number of things. Um, so a couple of things. First off, I, my sense or guess is that it's always been difficult to care. <laughs> mm. Okay. I think that's um, very charitable, and I think that's really important as well. Um, it, 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 I don't get the sense uh, that we go back in time and we'll find a time where, oh, this, you know, all these indigenous cultures, wherever are going, you know, they all knew how to love everybody, and they and everybody then felt loved, and it was all beautiful. I love that. And can I have you having said that? Let me just let me just alter slightly here and just say that we are in a time where our bandwidth to recognize the pathology in our relationships has vastly opened up. And now even just myself is, I am just an example that I have the bandwidth to see the disease in my own relating, in my own thinking, in my own intimate relationships. And I am coming into a time where I have the bandwidth to address it. And I have uh, inkling of the tools and the people and the knowledge. So I, I totally agree. I don't think that we zoom out and we have the, the cavemen being just like the total Neanderthal loving, uh, heart opened hippies. But we are in a time where the, the transformation is, is ripe. How, how then, or what, or what are the tools? What is important here? Right. Um, so then on the flip side, I'll say this, okay? So while I don't think there's much in the way of utopia, I think if you pay attention to the real relationships that many people have, they're probably pretty similar in their connection, in their health, through what they've been in the past in many ways, in the, mm. in the real contact, okay? Um, Algin Bard, you know, like, people don't change, only technology changes, he always says that. <laughs> and I think that's an important, and this idea that either we're so much worse or so much better, um, needs to always be at least questioned and what's the difference and how do we make comparisons? And and there have always been, almost always, sure, shaman-like people that don't feel, feel understood in particular communities and, you know, alienated. And some people really get connected and get along and some people are isolated. And um, and you look, we could bring our lens to virtually any structure and be like, oh, well, that's not ideal, right? That's not ideal parenting or that's pretty problematic. So so I think there's, a, there's this complexity of the world. Um, that said as I was just on another call where, where I was where I sort of asked about this, our relative potential, okay, 
or relative to potential Absolutely. is not at all being realized. Yes. Okay. Like we got a lot of control over really key variables that many systems in the past have not gotten control over that should have opened us up to realize hidden potentials in other domains. And in fact, I would argue more or less did the reverse. That is, it closed us down the way it evolved, at least shrank us in particular very important ways. So for example, what is the level of intimate community participation? The in and I, um, when I sometimes use the word meta-modernity, I use it in Lene Rachel Anderson's meaning. And that is that we can, you know, in a shorthand, divide up humanity in various epochs, and you get an, an indigenous epoch. You get a traditionalist epoch from so the Bronze Age and the actual age. You get a modernist epoch, and you get a postmodern epoch. And in each of these have very important sensibilities to teach us, okay? And the great potential of our age is that there's an opportunity through understanding and technology to actually manifest the benefits of each of these epochs mm. in a coherent and integrated way. And I think this is our great frustration is that we can see this and we're super far from manifesting it. <laughs> so, um, so the great understanding of the indigenous worldview and way of being is connectedness. Connectedness to other people, connectedness to nature. And, and they're embedded and connected the way they live their lives is this embedded, embodied worldview, the animism of the, you know, that tree behind you has a particular soul and it's doing various things. I just say, I fucking tree, you know, that is barely, is certainly not conscious. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh God, you know, it's like, so there, there's the indigenous epoch. There's the traditional epoch that gives us a worldview of identity and community at the national religious kind of level. There's the science, reason and capitalist epoch. And there's the big postmodern critique epoch. You know, these are, I think we can embrace potentially all of that and find a place where we are, have the biological and physical control, and then the psychosocial harmony, and then even the spiritual alignment. We can talk about what I mean by that, but spiritual alignment with the good. And so, and it's not a utopia on that. I'm a clinician. People are going to suffer. It's a, we're all going to die, people. <laughs> all gonna die and it's gonna suck at times you know but it could be it when i look out at the meaning in mental health crisis right and the noun of isolation and the fact that you know 70 percent haven't had a meaningful conversation don't quote me on that there's endless number of statistics it's not the persistence of, of the statistics but it's the clarity of what the data as a pattern show and that's a tremendous amount of impoverishment of connection so the people and their indigenous worldview families, like, hey, in your family, you see this beautifully. But what is missing is the societal structure that is conducive to that across the various levels of organization. Instead, what you get is the digital internet and its unbelievable capacity for like motivated polarization that pulls people into incredibly shallow, moralizing positions and ideological communities that have no real embodied embodied connection. No. And so, and so we pull people in these structures, they isolate the individualism, the breakdown of family and community participatory engagement, all of that is then created a massive impoverishment at a societal level. And it is that that I would hope that we could possibly start to change. Now you asked me how to change that. <laughs> okay. Then we'll pause here and I'll at least give, you know, we'll pause at the narrative of what the problem and the potential is that I at least see. That's my, my intellectual frame is the potential here that we're greatly underdeveloped on and we're not living up to our potential at all. And there's a lot that we should be doing different. I love that. And I think just in my own personal growth and development, as I've grown up, I've you know, in the last five years, it's been become very clear to me that my, you know, you mentioned there's a frustration that we're having right now as we can see the gap between our potential and how we are behaving currently as a species, we'll say. Yeah. I have the same frustration of myself 
that I constantly can see my potential and I'm frustrated with my actualization of that. And I think that there is a deep, those two things are constantly going to be in tension. And my absolute potential is never going to be actualized. I am constantly aiming for it, refining it, and never to uh, uh, to arrive. I'm never to arrive there. I would love, you know, as a closing question here, I would love, you know, one of the one of the things that started this freaking podcast, one of the first episodes I did was with Richard Bartlett. And he is this guy, he started in spiral, which is this very communal business protocol, I would say, or kind of like a very communal business thing. It was basically 300 people who all self funded all these different, uh, they had 50, uh, market facing businesses between the 300 people. And they kind of all, um, just naturally coalesced into projects. And one of the things that he said was that people radically need courage and there, you know, this is a Jordan B Peterson observation as well is that people are just downtrodden and how you know uh, richard said that we can give each other courage it's through a process called encouragement okay and i think that what we've laid out today is kind of a scary and i i you know like the the deep um internalization of these kinds of frustrations and um, problems in humanity has led to some kind of like anti-humanist movement where um, we there's people in my generation who hate America, who think America's the worst, and who think that you know humans are a virus, they're a plague on the earth. All of these different rhetorics that just are so tragically sad to me. And so, um, and you know, I, I liked how you put it that you know we're frustrated because we can see our problems right now and the the gap between our potential and our actualization is so vast and we're having a you know it's slapping us in the face daily what gives you hope and if you're to give some encouragement to the people who might be wrestling with these myriad problems and i know that there's also this media side of things that want to stoke this fire but i think that in general most of the problems inherently are are real have some sense of realness what gives you hope and how would you encourage the people who are currently eyes wide open to the gap i love my life Um, even no, as, ser- no, seriously, I think there's something there. And I, I you know, yeah. that's what I, that's what I do in my life, Greg. Right. I'm like, I literally woke up, I sprung out of bed after having some dream of a sex party. And I sprung out of bed and hiked up a cliff and jumped off it with a parachute. You know, like I'm, a, mm. I'm enthused as fuck right now. Dude, I got, I got, I built this thing called you talk. It's my yeah. soul and soul. And I get to talk with people about it. You know, there's this idea that maybe this will help stuff. And it's my soul and I get to <laughs> share it. And other people say, Hey, that's nourishing for me. I mean, so, you know, that's woohoo. Mm. Um, uh, one of our, one of the beliefs uh, that, uh, that, uh, so I'm trying to create this lifestyle here. Um, and so belief in a garden fractal. Okay. And you talk belief in a garden fractal. What do we mean by the garden fractal? So the garden is a symbol in many, many myths, and certainly in, in Utah, of wise living, okay? Of, of holistic, sustainable, wise living, uh, enhancing dignity and well-being with integrity as a way of kind of framing that wise living uh, that kind of connects the transcendentals, enhancing beauty, goodness, and truth, okay, kinds of things. But what's the fractal, okay? Why, why am I bringing the fractal up? One of the things that's very important for people to understand is that we, if we look at our potential and then you see the horror at the whole, 
inside of that hole is all sorts of beautiful potential for particular little cells. <laughs> you know, system could be in trouble as all. Well. There's a lot of opportunities for this little apartment to find love, mm-hmm. you know, I know, inside of this. And then to the extent that we, that's, we are enacting love in a way that actually if other people enacted love in this particular kind of way, there would be an emergent movement, you know, and a shift. Okay. So we need to be aware of the danger. Um, but at the same time, we need to know the locus of control and influence, the sphere of influence we're in, and that our attention, our behavioral attention, and our presencing needs to be situated in that even as we're aware of that. So it's very important that we do not confuse our lives with the macroscopic situation. Mm. It's a very, very different thing. So if you look at the macroscopic, you're like, oh my God, it's a disaster. And then you're like, therefore, my life is a disaster. Okay, uh, you've done a le- level if you <laughs> error. <laughs> that, that that brings up this quote, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, I read yesterday, which uh-huh. was, most people don't seem to realize that when they talk about the wor- talk about the world, they're admitting their character. Okay. So how are you right? How are you going to see the world, see your place in it, and differentiate and, and integrate those two? elements. And so the garden fractal is about that. It's about, okay, this is how I'm part of a whole, how I'm also separate the whole, what is my sphere of influence and how does it resonate or not with the rest? And what is the right relation of is and ought around those layers of being? Um, And so what I would encourage is that we want to, we do want to look out, see the potential and hope that we can become what our potential orients us toward individually in our sphere of influence in our little garden fractal and then hopefully in the big garden fractal and to the extent we can on either one of those we feel that okay and then we want to do to work towards that but we also want to be so it's doing being and becoming you know at the right level of relation meaning at the right size at the right with the sphere of garden okay so I want to, hey, man, you know, I've built this unified. I have no idea how to influence the world in relationship to it. I guess I'm just a failure. I I built this thing. It can make a difference. Nobody really knows what the hell I'm doing. You know, Ari, I had this potential. I could have saved the world. And I failed because I don't know how to market. And I don't, you know, I can't get, you know, people to talk to me really and have any power and influence. Jordan Peterson never called me, you know, and I guess I'm just a loser. No, <laughs> no, you know, right? That's like, oh, hold on, you know, what's happening? What's the frame of reference? So you need to, we need to figure out what's the right frame of reference. What's the right cultivating attitude? How do we move between being, doing, and becoming in right relation to the sphere that we're talking about? Um, and it's important not to get confused uh, between those domains and see all the problems and sort of identify and project onto them and then feel all helplessness. And, all humans are you know, evil, I guess. I, I would certainly find that to be not in right relation to is and all. Yeah. So what I hear there is a, just an encouragement to, to be careful with the identification of the problems you see with your own personal life, your identity, your worth. Those are things that you want to keep neatly separated and I, I think you mentioned one of the key insights uh, is is a is a metacognitive perspective with an attitude of love yeah and i would certainly say in terms of a garden fractal principle that's a beautiful garden fractal principle. i and love so that if we can step back see what is feel the pain of the under achieving of our potential and also love all the actualizations that are real and just be present with that. And, and we're, you know, I, so one of our, another one of our beliefs or values is to honor the miracle of our existence. Yeah. Um, and, and to be amazed that here we are having a conversation. And oh my God, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's amazing. It's a miracle. It's beautiful. It doesn't happen hardly, as far as we know, well, maybe they're aliens or whatever, but basically confirmed, as far as we know, that's the only place it's happening. It's a beautiful thing. Um, how do we honor that sacredness and 
and you know appreciate it with awe, gratitude, and humility. I love that. Yeah, yesterday after a bite of ice cream, the four-year-old said, "Oh my God, chocolate!" Right? <laughs> chocolate, yeah. isn't it incredible? It's, it's, it's a, you know, life's amazing. It right? is a miracle. It's amazing. <laughs> well. That's such a beautiful place to leave off. And I so appreciate your insights and your time. It's so great to reconnect. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been too long, friend. I'm really good to see you. Yeah. Cheers. Okay. You guys, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far in the podcast and you enjoyed it, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. And if you have existential or relational knots that you'd like to untie, check out airyintheair.com. There's a coaching page. I would love to untie existential knots with you in my philosophical coaching practice, which is uh, so life-giving for everyone involved in my experience. So thanks so much. We'll see you on the next episode.